Okay, open your Bibles to Psalm 10. We talked about last week that some people regard Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 as one psalm. And there are some good reasons for that. There is, in general, a change of tone from Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. Psalm 10, as you see the outline on the board, where is the Lord in the midst of troubles? In verses 1 and 2, a description of the wicked man in verses 3 through 11, a prayer, arise, O Lord, a prayer for the Lord to arise and bless his people in verses 12 through 15, and then a statement that the Lord is king forever and ever. Let's read the words and get them before us. We're going tonight, Lord willing, to particularly pay attention to some thoughts from Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 that are connected. So if you remember Psalm 9 well, think about that. And we also want to try to see how we can fit this psalm, after we understand the psalm, how we fit it into the bigger picture of the Bible. Psalm 10. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plot which they have devised. For the wicked boast of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in the hiding places as a lion in his lair. Or liar. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He said to himself, you will not require it. You have seen it. You have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Seek out his justice until you find no more. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline their your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed. The man who is of the earth may cause terror no more. Okay. 
We don't have to go very long into Psalm 10 before we see an obvious connection with Psalm 9. Psalm 9 verse 9 stated that the Lord is a stronghold in times of trouble. But in 10.1, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The phrase times of trouble from 10.1 reminds us of 9.9. The Lord is a refuge to us in our times of trouble. But now as the psalmist experiences trouble, it seems like in the most inopportune time, God has chosen to hide Himself. And God has chosen to stand far off. Why? It's kind of like the cry of Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do you stand afar off? Does it sometimes seem as if God is a million miles away? Particularly in the midst of a crisis, in the midst of a problem, the wicked swallow up the one more righteous than they, and all we hear from heaven is silent. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself? In times of trouble. In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. By the way, that word hotly pursue, which is used here in verse 2 in the New American Standard Bible, that word is... um, the same word used to describe Jacob pursuing or Laban pursuing Jacob in Genesis 31 verse 36. In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Now the text says, let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. Now this is a point the end of verse 2 where translations differ greatly. Um, the New American Standard has let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. I think the ESV is similar, isn't it? If you have the ESV, what does it say? Ms. Dorothy, you were... Okay. Yes, last of it. Uh, let, the, let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. Okay, let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. NIV, anybody have the NIV? Okay, Micah? Okay, I want you to see a difference. And I don't know if you picked up on it there, but the New American Standard in verse 2 have let them be called. The idea is that it's the wicked who are called in these plots. This is the idea of the New American Standard Bible. This is the idea of the English Standard Version. The New International Version has that they will be called seemingly a reference to the innocent. This is the NIV. I want to tell you that the NIV, I think, fits the context 
better. Because the first line, in pride the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted, if this is synonymous parallelism, which it seems to be, verse 1 was, let the, they, they will be caught, would refer to the innocent being caught in the plots of the wicked. There is a basis the, uh, for the New American Standard and ESV translation. They, it simply says they, they're translating, uh, what is a Hebrew imperfect as a justive, let him be, let them be. But, but not trying to get into all of that, but let me say this. Back in chapter 9, verses 15 through 16, we saw last week, once again, that idea of Lex Talionis. That idea that the plots and plans of the wicked will come back on them. Chapter 9, 15, and 16 celebrated the fact that the wicked are caught and trapped in the plots that they lay for others. But here in 10, verse 2, that doesn't seem to be visible in this particular case. It seems like here that the innocent are caught in the plots that the wicked lay. Why is the Lord afar off? Why does the Lord let that happen? Why does He let that happen? Well, verses 3 through 11 are going to give a description of the wicked man. Now, there are several places in the Bible we could turn for a similar description. I'm going to mention a couple of them. Psalm 73 Verses 1 through 14, particularly verses 3 through 14, give a description of the wicked man. Also, Job 21, verses 7 through 16, gives a description like this. This wicked man is doing quite well for himself. He's doing quite well for himself. In verse 3, the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. The greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. He boasts, and by the way, that word boast is sometimes used for boasting in God, rejoicing in God, but he's not boasting about God. He's not praising God. In this case, he is boasting and praising about his desires, his wants. And in contrast to that, he is spurning the Lord. He's spurning the Lord and he is cursing the Lord. Uh, some people change and say that he is uh, changed the object of the end of verse 3. He blesses the greedy man and spurns the Lord. Uh, there could be a reason for that translation. But, but as a whole, let's just picture what this says about the wicked. The wicked man boasts of his desire. The greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek God. Does not seek Him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Now, we're trying to make connections between Psalm 10 and Psalm 9. 
Psalm 10 verse 1 talked about the times of trouble. The Lord is a refuge in times of trouble in 9.9. But now in 10.1, why are you hiding yourself in times of trouble? In uh, 10.2, the innocent are caught in the net. And in chapter 9 verses 15 and 16, it's the wicked who are going to be caught in that net. In chapter 10 verse 4, the wicked does not seek God. And God promised in chapter 9 and verse 10 that He would not forsake the one who seeks Him. Do you see how the world seems to be turned upside down from Psalm 9? He says in his thoughts there is no God. And as we talked about Sunday, this probably wasn't a, a an atheist who denies God's existence, but he just lives as if it doesn't matter. And God will never call him to account. And it says in verse 5, His ways prosper at all times. Now, that word times used in 10.5, is the same word for times used back in 10.1. In 10.1, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? But the wicked doesn't seem to have those times of trouble. The wicked person prospers at all times. He prospers. What did the first psalm condition us to think about the one who prospers? It's the righteous who's going to prosper, wasn't it? Psalm 1-3. He's going to be like the tree planted beside the water. This person is as far away from the righteous as one could be. And yet, he prospers. And let me just ask you, is this real to life? Are there any people who come to your mind when we read these psalms, because there are a whole lot who come to mind. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. And as for his adversaries, he snorts at them. The New American Standard uh, excuse me, the Septuagint has at the end of verse 5, He lords it over them. But your judgments, a word used in 10.5, and that word was used in chapter 9, verse 7, in chapter 9 and verse 16. But your judgments are on high. Maybe this is saying God gives His decrees, God issues His judgment, but it really never trickles down to us. It doesn't filter down to us. And so He feels free to run roughshod over His enemies. And He says in verse 6, He says to Himself, I shall not be moved throughout all generations I shall not be in adversity. I shall not be. I shall not be moved. Remember that song? Remember that song? Is that a good song in light of this verse? Well, well, let me show you something. Look at 15.5. 
I want you to really think about this. 15.5 is talking about the righteous man. It says he does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. 16.8 I have set the Lord continually before me. He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Psalm 21 verse 7. The Lord, the king trusts in the Lord. The lo- and through the loving kindness of the Most High, He will not be shaken. Did you notice anything about 15.5, 16a, and 21.7? Notice anything about those songs? Who is saying... I will not be moved. I will not be shaken. There, it is the righteous who trust in God. It's the righteous. In the Psalms, these words can be said. But these words are the priority of those who belong to God. And they will not be moved and they will not be shaken because they serve a Lord who cannot be moved and cannot be shaken. That's why they can say this. Now, even with us, though, there is the danger that our circumstance makes us... makes us... Forget our trust in God. For example, in Psalm 36, look at this, Psalm 30, verse 6. Now, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. After this, he discusses how he faced prosperity and he faced difficulty. But in Psalm 30, in verse 6, he said in his prosperity, I will not be moved. The point is, it is sometimes easy for us, it's easy for us to think that when things are going well, they will always go well and there's never going to be a problem. And that's what the wicked said. There's nothing but smooth soft skies and clear sailing from this point on. And, and, and let me use an illustration that I hope isn't over your head, okay? okay I hope it's not over your head. But the words, nothing ahead but smooth skies and clear sailing, were the last words of the skipper and Gilligan before they got struck in that three-hour tour. Okay? Go back and watch that. You'll see it. Was that, was that close enough to the ground? Everybody could follow that. But the wicked says, I shall not be moved. He thinks his prosperity is going to go on forever. And in verse 7, his mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. How does this wicked person do so much damage? First of all, by his words. His mouth is full of curses, deceit, and oppression. 
under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with words. It continues to action. In verse verse 8, he sits in lurking places of the village. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion. And he lurks to catch the afflicted. The point is, he compares the wicked man to a hunter. He compares the wicked man specifically to a lion. And they are both trying to hide themselves, lurking in secret places, trying to kill the innocent, the unfortunate, the afflicted. Trying to catch them in his net. By the way, if we're continuing our discussion here of parallels between 9 and 10, the net in 9.15 we were told it would catch the wicked. Here it seems to catch the afflicted. The wicked is compared to a lion catching and trapping us. And it says this lion couches, crouches. The lion bows down. Remember in the promises that Jacob makes to his sons? Judas described that way. In a positive way. Genesis 49 verse 9. But now it's not positive. Because it's wicked who are attacking innocent people. He crouches. He bows down. The unfortunate falls to himself. To, to his mighty ones. And he says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see. Do you notice that at least three times in this psalm, psalm the wicked is pe- pictured speaking to himself. In verse 6, he said to himself, I shall not be moved. In verse 11, he says to himself, God has forsaken He's hidden his face. In verse 13, he says to himself, you will not require it. The wicked keeps telling himself, everything will be okay. And God will not call me to account. The wicked keeps trying to assure himself. But the wicked says in 10 verse 11... That God has forgotten. But in Psalm 9 verse 12 and verse 18, we are told that the Lord does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And He will not always forget the needy. The wicked says, He has forgotten The wicked says in 10 verse 11, he will never see. But in chapter 9 verse 13, in chapter 9 verse 13, see my affliction. The psalmist cried out. But look at that description of the wicked. Again, are there wicked people of whom this can be said. Recently, a very public person 
sit in the midst of some religious objections to what he was doing. That God's will is not the concern of us. And he has prospered for 30 years. The wicked say this and seem to get away with it. In the psalmist, sometimes, in the Psalms, there are times where the wicked taunts the righteous and asks, Where is your God? Where is your God? The painful thing is that sometimes the righteous know there's a good basis for that question. Where is God? In the midst of our problems. In the midst of our difficulties. Any thoughts you have right there, questions you have, I don't want to, I'm not trying to limit that. I'll admit, in this class, I am conscious of trying to get everything in in an hour. And so sometimes if I cut you short, I'm not trying to, but Don? Isaiah 115 about, you know, your hands are covered with blood. When you stretch out your hands, I will not hear for your hands are covered with blood. Uh, yes, in, in that case, God doesn't accept their worship because they are wicked. You know, but these, those, in that context, Don, it may be in this context too, though this isn't specifically stated. Those worshiping people were going, those wicked people were going to church all the time. In Isaiah 1 verses 10 through 17. And, um, and that's what, what, in that context, God is just emphasizing that He will not accept their worship. Yeah, He won't hear their prayers. And, and He calls them, He said, if your worship's going to be accepted, that they're going to cease to do evil and learn to do well. In verses 16 and 17 of Isaiah 1. Yes, Brad. That point you made about, you know, talking to yourself, it's like, you know, if you don't have something, a higher power in your life, you become your own standard. You Absolutely. You, you become the person that you bounce all your ideas off of. And it all sounds good. And you go, oh, I'm not going to change. I'm doing yeah. fine. And, I mean, boy, don't we see that so much today? It's like just not having a guiding post, uh, a compass in your life just, just creates this. Exactly. And particularly when you combine what you're saying of us being our own standard and accountable to no one except ourselves in prosperity, we don't understand our desperate need. And I have looked at people, and I'm sure you have as well, and think, I hope that they repent before it's too late. But it's going to take a calamity that rocks their world to wake them up. Because right now, in the midst of their prosperity, they're not open to that possibility. So yes, exactly. Now, 
Verse 12 begins with, Arise. I quote this. I quote this with some intrepidation because I realized last week I told you something wrong. I told you that Psalm 9 ended with a Salah and I said the Psalms don't end with Salah. Then in my podcast on Psalm 3 I was reminded Psalm 3 ends in Salah. So I apologize for that false teaching. Um, And the same source that gave me that information gave me this. So take it with caution. But the word arise in 10, 12, this word was used in Psalm 9, verse 19. That's obvious. He said... This is interesting because this psalm is never used, this word is never used in back-to-back psalms anywhere else in the book of Psalms. So, if we find that wrong, I'll tell you then that I was wrong about that. But but uh, right now we'll let that stand. Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Now again, we have saw, we have seen earlier the wicked. This is a, this is a direct answer to what the wicked is saying. The wicked are saying God has forgotten, and He is saying in ten twelve, "Do not forget, just as you promised you wouldn't." Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand. In Second Samuel twenty. Verse 21, that's about Sheba's rebellion. And it talks about Sheba lifted up his hand against David. 2 Samuel 20, 21. The point, lift up your hand, is a phrase to describe hostility to another. It's a phrase to describe hostility. But he says, arise, O Lord, lift up your hand. Lift up your hand. Lift up your hand toward the wicked. Act with hostility against them. Do not forget the afflicted. Also, another source I read said that there's no psalm that uses such a variety of words for the helpless, for the defenseless, as Psalm 10 does. In verse... In verse 13, why has the wicked spurned God? He said to himself, you will not require it. Why has the wicked done this? Now, the word why, not the same word why used in verse 1, but it's the same kind of idea. But I want you to notice this difference. The why of verse 1 is saying, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? That why is directed to the Lord, wondering where is the Lord in times of trouble. The why of verse 13 is kind of like the why of Psalm 2.1. Why does the heathen rage? Have you ever looked at wicked people and thought, what is motivating you? What is driving you? Why such insane hostility to God and to right? And particularly in some cases, I'm astonished that people demonstrate insane hostility to one they say they don't believe is there. Why has the wicked spurred God? He said to himself, 
You will not require it. We'll come back to that word. You have seen it. Remember? The wicked person says, you never see. He never sees. Here in chapter 10, in verse 14, he says, you have seen it. And I'll tell you something else about this. Both of the you's in verse 14 are emphatic. It is almost like saying, you, you have seen it. And you, you have been the helper of the orphan. In 10.14, both of those you's are emphatic. You have seen it. Or those two you's are. For you have beheld mischief and vexation and taken degree. God has seen everything. The wicked may assure himself. The Lord hasn't seen. The Lord doesn't know. The Lord is forgotten. And He is affirming. You have seen it and you will not forget. You will not forget. You are the helper of the orphan. And you may say, where has the orphan come from? The orphan, that word has not been used specifically, but the text has mentioned the innocent, the unfortunate, the afflicted, the needy. All of these terms have been used and the orphan is perhaps the one with the fewest resources of all and the greatest need. And you are the helper of the orphan. God is the helper of the helpless. The defender of the defenseless. And it says, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Break the arm. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. Now, Let me go to this word seek in particular, okay? That word seek was used in chapter 9, verse 12. was used in 9.10 and 9.12, and it is used three times here. Same word. Again, we're showing connections between Psalm 9 and 10. It's used in Psalm um, 10, verse 4. Psalm 10, verse 13. Psalm 10, verse 15. When it says you will not require it, it means you will not seek it. God seeking the blood of the afflicted means God is quick to avenge the death of the innocent person. That's what that means. And so the text says God will never forsake. Putting all these together, God will not forsake the one who seeks him. And God will seek the one who who tries to take the life of those innocent who trust him. The wicked denies this is true in verse 4 and in verse 13. But again, verse 15 affirms, seek out his wickedness. Seek, repay him for what he has done until there is evil no more. And in verses 16 through 18, the Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished in the land. Now, again, tying in Psalm 9, Psalm 10, the nations mentioned 
in verse 16, the nations, remember the wicked will be turned into Sheol and all nations that forget God in 917. 10.16 uses the word perish. The nations have perished from the land. That word was used in 9.3, and also in um, also in all those passages. I think I may be forgetting one. Nations have perished from His land. O Lord, You have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline Your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed. The man who is of the earth may cause terror no more. Look at that word desire in verse 17. O Lord, You have heard the desire of the humble. That word desire in verse 17 is the same word translated desire. Desire in verse 3. The wicked boast of his heart's desire. His desire in verse 3. The wicked is to promote himself. And to boast of himself. The humble desire of the righteous. Is simply that God vindicate him. And God has heard. And God will strengthen their heart. And God will vindicate the orphan and the oppressed that man who is on the earth may cause terror no more. This word man, same word used in 9.19 and 9.20. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but... Man. Now remember too, we talked about last week, it's the same word as Psalm 8 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? In Psalm 8, Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him? Man is humbled and awed when he looks into the heavens at the expanding heavens and sees how great they are and thinks of how small they are in comparison to the God who made it. And then he looks at little man and knows God's care and concern for him. What is man? But that sense of awe and that sense of humility have been forgotten by the men of 9 and 10.18. May that man who is of the earth cause no more terror. May he not be allowed to afflict and oppress. And may you vindicate the orphan and the oppressed. Does morality matter? Does it pay to love truth and righteousness? Yes. Is that always evident in all societies at all times? It is all is it always evident in any society? At all times. No. Sometimes it is not apparent that truth matters, that God matters, 
that God will vindicate the righteous and God will punish the wicked. We often are called to exercise faith and trust in God in the midst of the world where the wicked prosper, where the wicked is saying, I will never be moved, who is using his tongue to destroy innocent people and his actions to threaten their very lives. And we are called in the midst of a world like this where God seems so far away to believe the Lord is King forever and ever. O Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. My faith goes dim when I'm overwhelmed with evil in the world. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. The psalm is very realistic about the situation in the world. I want to tell you something too. You may not be into classifying psalms. Some of the writers on them are, I'll tell you that. I have never seen Psalm 10 classed as an imprecatory psalm that I remember. An imprecatory psalm is one that calls them judgment on enemies. Is this an imprecatory psalm? Well, there are imprecatory elements as he is asking God that the man who's of the earth may cause terror no more in verse 18. In verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Require the innocent life. It require bloodshed of those who have killed and taken innocent life. Verse 13 and verse 15. I really think the more you think about it, we don't have any Christian ground to, to stand on when we object to imprecatory prayers. Have any of you been overwhelmed by the wickedness of the world and cried out, Oh Lord, come. You ever had that happen? You ever cry for the second coming? Doesn't that automatically mean judgment on the wicked? Just as it means salvation for the righteous. We'll talk about that in more detail other times, particularly when we get to Psalm 35. But I really don't think there's any ground for us objecting to imprecatory prayers. And I don't think we realize how they are inherent in so many circumstances. Because so many circumstances, vindicating the righteous means judging the wicked, doesn't it? Now, any questions or comments that you have on that psalm right now? I can't help but think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to Nebuchadnezzar 
uh, our God will save us from your fire, but if he he doesn't, we are not going to fall down to your God. They believed in spite of what was going on around them. There was no evidence as they were in Babylonian captivity and they were being called to bow down to the God, the most powerful man in the world had set up where he worshipped many gods. There is no evidence in what they see in their society that God was ruling. But he was. And I hope younger people, you remember that. That it's not going to always be the case that everything works out. I, I heard a preacher use this illustration one time. I thought this was pretty powerful. He used an illustration of a person who detected some dishonesty in his company and something that was going on wrong. This came to the attention of the leaders of the company. And they saw it. And they praised him and he was celebrated and he was promoted. But in the same circumstance, almost the same situation, another Christian had seen the same kind of thing in his company and he brought it forward and instead of being praised and celebrated, he was fired. Sometimes you do the right thing and you're a hero. Sometimes you do it and you're the villain. And I will tell you something too. And young people listen to this. It's like that in the church sometimes too. It happens in churches too. Our affirmation that the Lord is King is a statement of faith in the midst of a world which doesn't always seem to indicate that. And so our responsibility is to do right and to follow God, believing if we are not vindicated in this life, we will be vindicated in the next. And the reason I press that on you young people, I'm assuming older people have to some degree experienced that. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to say it to you, not to insult you, but to affirm that to you. But I want to tell you, it's not hard, it's not easy for us at any age to bear. And may God help us with that. But I want to tell you, Jesus knows a little bit about this psalm, doesn't he? Did Jesus know anything about evil people lurking like hunters and lions waiting to pounce and destroy? Jesus knew something about that, didn't he? He knew something about that. Let me say something else before I will follow that up in just a second about Jesus. 
Look at verse 7 again. You got good footnotes? What do you have as a footnote for Psalm 10 7? What do you have as a footnote? Some of you have it, I know you do. Romans 3? Romans 3? Is it verse 13 or 14? 14. 14. What's context of Romans 3? All have sinned, and he invokes a passage from Psalm 10 7 to show it. You know what that shows us? We've all got more in common with this wicked person than we would like to admit. We saw that same thing in Psalm 5 9. Which quoted, which is quoted in Romans three thirteen, right before this statement in Romans three fourteen, and that psalm made a stark contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Again, we've all got more in common with the wicked than we would like to think, and we need His grace. But Jesus knows something about this psalm. Let me just point out some some areas where that's true. That, first of all, in verse 1, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The Greek word had a word... Something that could be translated like opportune time. Which is used just a couple of times in the New Testament. It is used in Matthew 26, verse 16. In Luke 22, verse 6. Could Would you venture to guess who is looking for that opportune time in both those cases? Judas. He's looking for an opportune time to betray Jesus. This is one of the disciples. The statement the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted, it was translated in the Septuagint. They spit at them. A phrase used of Jesus. They spit upon him. And there are some other passages that say that. We talked about no psalm uses the variety of words for the defenseless, for the helpless, for the innocent that Psalm 10 does. Particularly Psalm 10 verse 8 talks about killing the innocent. And both in Judas says, I have sinned, I have betrayed innocent blood. I have down the term is also used in verse 24. Verse 24 would be Pilate speaking if I've got that reference correct. And they killed him. 
the ultimate innocent sufferer was not whoever Psalm 10 was originally written of. But it was Jesus. And I want to tell you something. When you do the right thing and the whole world turns against you, Jesus knows what that is. And Hebrews 4 verses 14 through 16 says that He can come to our aid, particularly because of what He has experienced. He comes to our aid. And in the word used that's translated lurks in verse 9, a couple of times in the New American Standard, in the Septuagint, that word is used for them colluding together and plotting together to kill Jesus. It is used there. Now there's more that we could reference. But I want to mention a couple more. Just a couple more. Have you ever said to God in the midst of our trials, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your times of trouble, have you ever said, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? I have. Let me ask you a question. Can Jesus ever say that of us? Do you know in each of the gospel or each of the synoptic gospels that the words afar off, the word used in the Septuagint is the word that is used to describe Peter standing or following Jesus afar off. We may wonder, why Lord, do you stand far off in times of trouble? Why do you stand far off in times of trouble? And the Lord can look at us and say the same thing. You see Psalm 10 And its description of the wicked does describe us. But I want to tell you, I stated that, stated that that the fact that God rules the world isn't always clear. The Lord is King forever and ever. Take a concordance and just look up that word King in the New Testament. And you will find that there is a heavy concentration of the use of that word king to talk about passages around the cross 
in Matthew 27, verse 11, Matthew 27, verse 39, Matthew 27, verse 37, Matthew 27, verse 42. All of these passages affirm Jesus as the King of the Jews. In the midst of the cross, there's never been a time when it seemed more the case that the innocent were being run over, that wickedness ruled, that wickedness was triumphant, and God would never call us to account. But even then, God is King. God is King. He is King forever and ever. And while the word arise in 12 verse 10... It's a word used for the resurrection too. That Jesus arose from the dead. In Mark, one of the passages, Mark 8, 31. Yes, all of this is to be interpreted in light of Jesus. And Jesus' experience help us when we go through times of trouble. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part. I'm going to ask Micah to lead us in prayer. And then I'll finish. It's my part. And Brad is Brad has gotten songs. It just didn't seem like a class last week, Brad, with no song. No Psalm. We were we were songless. We're psalmless on Psalm nine, but Psalm ten. We have a couple of of, of songs, and we appreciate that. And uh, Micah, would you lead us in prayer? Dear God, we are humbled to be in your presence. We recognize how close you are, and yet so many times we feel. We feel as though you are afar off. Whenever we see the wicked prosper, whenever we see uh, Satan abounding in this world, but Lord, we recognize that you are in control and that you are our strong hand. You are the helper of the helpless, that when we are afflicted and we are oppressed, that... You are on our side. May we continually seek your face and not be counted among the wicked. We know that we have been guilty of, of iniquity, of, of bloodshed, of, of hatred. Lord, we ask that you, that you test us, you try us, and that you refine us, that we can be right and be one with you and that we can enjoy the, the immense blessings that come from putting our trust in you. Lord, you are worthy of all praise because you, uh, through your Son, in the fact that he came to this earth, he, he was oppressed and he was afflicted on our behalf. He, he had no need in of himself to do it, but he did it out of love for you and out of love for us. May we reflect that in our lives every day. All praise be to your name. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.